listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades. Say it with me. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, because that is true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I'm really glad that you're here. We are journeying through this letter of Hebrews, and we find ourselves in verse 7. And we will get all the way, Lord willing, through chapter 3. And the next week, we're going to take a little break from Hebrews. Tyler's going to preach a standalone message. And then we're going to pick up, Lord willing, the week after that back into Hebrews chapter 4. I'm at the age now where um, I'm, getting, uh, I'm getting things in the mail asking me if I am ready for retirement. <laughs> I actually got something telling me that I pre-qualified for membership to the AARP. Brad, are you ready for retirement? Do you have enough saved up? Let me ask you a question. Do you have a plan to get to heaven? Do you have a plan to get to heaven? Are you ready to get to heaven? Now, that seems like a strange question to ask out of the chute. And you might say, well, of course I do, Brad. This is a gospel-centered church. We believe in Jesus. We are resting on his finished work, what he has done, not what I have done but my hope is in what Christ has done alone. And on a grand level, of course, that is the right answer, and I want to say to that, yes and amen. But our text this morning, and I hope you know this, that the Bible actually has a lot more to say about how to get to heaven than just broadly, as glorious as it is, the good news of what Christ has done. Yes and amen. There's more to the Christian life than just confessing what Jesus has done. There is endurance, there's perseverance, there's holding on to Jesus. In fact, I think you could summarize the letter to Hebrews by saying that Jesus is far superior than anything else, so hold on to him, draw near to him. And that's what we've been learning about in Hebrews up to this point. At the beginning of chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews says, Consider Jesus, think deeply about him in light of the fact that he is better than the angels, in light of the fact that he is done this for you, the end of chapter 2, his work on the cross. Consider Jesus. He's better than anything that has gone before. And remember this letter is written to first century Jews in Rome who are enduring increasing persecution and they are tempted to go back on their commitment to Jesus. They've made the confession that they're saved by Jesus' work alone, but they're tempted to not persevere and not hold on. And the writer, the preacher, better said of Hebrews, is saying, hold on to Jesus. And our text this morning, verses 7 through 19, he's going to use, here's the flow of the text, it's an example and an exhortation. An example and an exhortation. Now the example that he's going to use is he's going to draw on Psalm 95, which would have been, for a first century Jew, a very well-known psalm. They would have known it by heart. And Psalm 95 is a meditation of Numbers chapter 13 and 14, which we'll talk about in a moment, when Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness. So he's going to use the example 
of this scene in the life of Old Testament Israel. And in the middle of this text, he's going to give an exhortation that I think is a plan for how to get to heaven. So let me read the text. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Do your best. Do your best. This is, friends, right now, these next few minutes as I read this text, this is the best part of the sermon. So do your best to pay attention to the Word of God. The writer says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, verse 12. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Well, this is the Lord's word. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, take this text. I pray this is such an important passage in Hebrews. Help me explain it well. And then, Lord, go beyond our efforts, my efforts, my ability to preach and our ability to hear and do what only you can do by your spirit. Lord, please Lord, I think you wrote this text to be the means of grace by which you rescue Christians from themselves, by which you preserve us, by which you snatch wandering souls from destruction. Lord, do that today, I pray. And embolden us, put steel in our spines, make us more sure of Christ. Lord, help us and help me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you to see this example, and I want to explain the context. So verses 7 through 11, and then verses 15 through 19 is a commentary. It's, a, it's, an, it's an exposition. It's the writer of Hebrews is commenting on Psalm 95 and applying it to the situation of the Hebrews in the first century. So what's going on in Psalm 95? Let me just give you a little bit of context. In fact, verses 7 through 11 in, Psalm, in, in Hebrews chapter 3 are a direct quote of, ironically enough, verses 7 through 11 in Psalm 95. And the context is 
is that in this psalm, the psalmist is reflecting back on Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And we won't take time to read it, but I would encourage you to read Numbers chapter 13 and 14. It's this incredible scene in the history of Israel. God has, think about this now, just get in this moment here. God has rescued Israel from the Egyptian captivity. They had been in Egyptian captivity for centuries. And not because of anything that Israel did in their own power, but simply by his sovereign, miraculous hand, he sends these plagues. He wrestles his people from the clenched fist of Pharaoh. He opens up the Red Sea. He causes his people to go through the Red Sea, then closes it on the chasing Egyptian army. And then he brings his people to Mount Sinai. And through Moses, he gives them his law. They camp at Mount Sinai for about a year. And then God tells Moses to lead the people across the wilderness into the promised land. Now, it should have taken just a couple weeks. It ends up taking 40 years. Talk about going around your elbow to get to your nose. It ends up taking them 40 years because of their disobedience to God. That's a kind of picture of sanctification. Sometimes our spiritual growth takes longer than it should have because of the hardness of our hearts. But here Israel is in the wilderness and they are on the edge of the promised land in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And God tells Moses to send out some spies for you army guys. This is where all you 19 Delta scouts, don't give me any hoops or hollers out there because you aren't an infantryman. You wish you were an infantryman. You're almost an infantryman. But this is where the scouts, the scouts out. The scouts go out and they spy the land. I'm going to get some comments about that one, I know for sure. All you army guys in here right now, some of you, I've lost you for the rest of the sermon. But the scouts are sent out to spy the land. And they go to the land, they go to the edge, and they see, they go into the Canaan land, the promised land that God had promised that he would give his people all the way back in Genesis. And they see these huge people, they see this land filled with milk and honey. In fact, the grapes are so big, they have to be carried on sticks. The the fruit, the, the abundance of the land is incredible, but the people are huge, and they are numerous. And the spies come back to Moses, and they say, yeah, yeah, it's like you said it would be. It's amazing. But the people there are giants. In fact, we to them are like grasshoppers. There's no way we can take them. And the people started to get discouraged and they were complaining against Moses. But God had also sent out, or Moses had also sent out with those spies, two spies in particular, Caleb and Joshua. And they said, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, the people are big. Yes, they are numerous. But look at what God has done for us. He hasn't brought us to the edge of the promised land. He hasn't rescued us from Egyptian slavery. He hasn't parted the Red Sea. He hasn't been with us all this time just to leave us on the brink, not to get us all the way home. He's with us, so let's go. Now, Moses interceded for the people because they were complaining. They didn't believe Joshua and Caleb. They said, no, 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 we're just gonna, we're just gonna, in fact, they said, you know what they said? God is, God is not faithful. Let's go back to Egypt. And God, as Moses intercedes with him, God says to Moses, he says, okay, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let the young people, I'm gonna let Joshua and Caleb and their descendants in, but all these, 
all these that are griping, all these because of their unbelief. I've been so good to them, and here they are, and they can't trust me to take them all the way home because of their unbelief. They're going to die. They've hardened their hearts in the desert, and they're going to die. And that's the context. That's what Psalm 95 is about. That's what the end of Psalm 95 is about. And here in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is reflecting on this psalm and he is applying it to the first century Jew who is struggling with the same sort of unbelief in God. God has been good to me. He's rescued from me from my sin. He's brought me thus far. But here I am on the edge of difficulty. Here I am on the edge of persecution and I'm going to give up and I'm going to go back. It would be better just to go back to Egypt, so to speak, than to press on and go into Christ. And that's the situation that's happening to the Hebrew church. And this writer, this preacher of Hebrews, uses that as an example then to dive into his exhortation. And here's the exhortation, verses 12 through 14. And I want us to notice, and this is the balance of the sermon here, I want us to notice three components of his exhortation in light of this example three components of this exhortation that I want us to notice and apply to our own situation. First, it is a personal exhortation. Look at verse 12 again. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He says, in light of this, in light of God's goodness, in light of the fact that you're complaining, in light of the fact that you're thinking about going back, in light of the fact that your heart is on the brink of possibly being hardened, verse 12, a personal exhortation. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the first thing I want us to notice about this exhortation is it's, it's personalized. It's, yes, he's talking to the group here, but he's talking to each individual person. He's talking to people that he's assuming to be Christians. Yes, it's to us, but it applies to us individually. There's personal responsibility here. He's saying to each of the individual brothers and sisters in the church in Rome, all of these Jewish Christians that have trusted in Christ and are tempted to go back to Judaism, he's saying to them personally, take care, brother or sister, that you do not fall away from God. What does it mean to take care? This phrase at the beginning of verse 12 is so so important. We need to make sure we know the force of everything that the writer is saying. It means to, to be aware of, to, to pay attention to, to, to be on the watch for, to be on guard, to have a posture of watchfulness, of self-analysis. Think about yourself and your life. And what are we to be aware of? What are the, the listeners of this message by this preacher of Hebrews to be aware of? They're to be aware of Something not out here. See, that's the, that's, the, that's the thing about, especially in our culture, we're, we're so aware of everything around us. And this is part of the danger, I think. This is part of the spiritual warfare of Christians in our age is that it's very easy to focus on how messed up the world is around us, which kind of gives us cover for our own hearts. But that's not the focus of the writer of Hebrews. He says, take care, brothers. Not that Rome is persecuting Christians or that Nero is debased and sinful, but take care of what's not outside there, but what's inside your own heart. Be aware of the potential 
of your unbelieving heart. And what's at the root of this heart? What's at the root? What's at the issue here? Is unbelief. And really, unbelief, we could say, I don't have time to develop this fully, but if we were just doing a kind of message, a, a, a sort of theology of sin, really at the root of all sin is unbelief. It is believing that God is not good for his word. That's what happened in the garden where, where Adam and Eve don't trust God's goodness. They doubt that he will come through. It's what's happening on the edge of the promised land there where these spies that are sent out are saying, no, God will not be good for his word. It's what we do. It's the calculation that we make in all of our lives. In fact, every sin can be traced to its core. The root of it all is unbelief that what God promises is not better than this thing that we are trading in in that moment. In fact, just think about this. Just think about a lie. Just think about sort of the most common of all sins. Just a little white lie. In that moment when we lie, what's underneath that lie is unbelief. Because in that moment, we think that the truth will somehow make it more difficult for us. And that temporary lie will be a kind of functional savior. Because speaking the truth really isn't enough. We don't believe that God can preserve us in that truth. And so we speak that lie and we give ourselves to a kind of temporary functional savior that will never ultimately deliver. And at the root here, the writer of Hebrews is going for the heart, the heart of unbelief. It's a personal exhortation. He's speaking to you and to me. And here's the point I'm going to make here in just a moment. No one, notice he says brothers. He says brothers, no one, no Christian has the luxury of writing themselves out of this verse. You don't grow out of this exhortation. There is no level of spiritual maturity where Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 does not apply. This is a word for Christians. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And where does this unbelieving heart lead a Christian? It leads them to fall away from the living God. Can a Christian, there's a question I want to pose and not answer just yet, but I want us to wrestle with, can a true Christian fall away from the living God? Well, we'll answer that in just a second. For now, let's just notice that it is a personal exhortation. It's a personal exhortation. Secondly, it's a, it's a communal exhortation. So it's not just to you, brothers and sisters, individually. It's a communal exhortation. Look at verse 13. He says, in, in light of this personal exhortation, he says also to all of us, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it's not just to us individually, but the context is a church, a group of people that are doing life together and there's an urgency to it. Don't, don't wait a month from now, but as long as it's called today, in other words, right now there's an immediacy. Take urgency in this. See the importance of this. The, the darkness is approaching. Some of us are falling away. And so he says, as long as it's called today, as long as you have time, exhort one another today. And then notice what he says, that none of you may be hardened 
and this phrase is it's stinging, it's, it's, it's sobering, by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other, I think the writer is saying, because none of us have 360 vision. We don't know. We all have blind spots, and we are all weak. And friends, we cannot fight sin on our own. Sin and the residual sin that still is in all Christians is stronger than we are on our own. Sin is way better at being deceptive than we are of resisting it as individuals. And the writer here is saying, exhort one another. You need each other. This is a personal call, something that you must do. You will stand before the Lord. You will not stand before the Lord as a victim. You, you cannot say that, oh, I had daddy issues, or this church wasn't very good, or whatever, or somebody abused me, or, or I had a bad marriage, or my boss didn't understand, or whatever. All those things, and I don't mean to minimize them, all those things on some level may be true, but the word first is to each individual take care of you, and then you in community together, you care for one another. You do it, and don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then he says, thirdly, notice the third component. I want to camp on this for a moment and answer the question that I pose, whether or not it's possible for a Christian to fall away from the living God. Thirdly, it's a necessary exhortation. Look again at verse 14. He says, For we have come to share in Christ, here's the condition, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So he's putting this condition. In fact, he does this on, in fact, Hebrews, I mentioned this last week, is kind of famous for these warning passages that you're in Christ if you hold on to the end. If you don't, then this will happen. In verse 12, he's saying to these brothers, he's calling them Christians, don't be led away by an unbelieving heart. If you do, it will lead you to fall away from the living God. So it's a personal exhortation. It's a communal exhortation. And finally, it is a necessary exhortation. It's one that every Christian needs to heed. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, before I explain that, let me first explain what I believe the Bible teaches about salvation in its whole. A very important doctrine, a theological issue, a doctrine in the Bible, the doctrine of the perseverance or the preservation of a believer. Sometimes we call it eternal security. Tyler mentioned earlier that in a couple weeks at our member meeting, we already believe this, but we're just updating our our statement of faith to, we think, a, a better statement of faith that phrases things a little bit better to reflect uh, where we are as a church. We have always believed this, but here's the statement on the perseverance of the saints in this statement of faith that, Lord willing, we will adopt as a church in a couple weeks. It says this, Article 11 of the Perseverance of Saints, it says, We believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence 
watches over their welfare, and they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So what is that saying in in maybe more everyday language? It's saying that somebody that is truly born again, a real believer, will necessarily endure to the end. And there are some people that are, they, they may seem like Christians at the time, this statement calls them superficial professors, but if they don't endure to the end if they fall away. They are not Christians that lost their salvation, but they are people that maybe seemed like they were Christians for a while, but proved themselves to never truly be a Christian. And that's because a special providence, capital P, meaning God in his means of grace, watches over their welfare and they are kept, they're held by the power of God through faith, unto salvation, so they can all sing that song that we sang earlier. Wasn't that great? Come on now. Some of you guys wanted to go. You, you saw, I saw some tambourines coming out on that one. Almost home. And so we believe, and I think you should believe, this isn't necessary to be a Christian, but if you don't believe this, I want to talk to you because I want you to see that salvation is, what's on the line in salvation is the glory of God and the strength of God and the promise of God to finish what he started. So the glory of God in your salvation, I think, scripturally means that if you are truly born again, you may go through trials and tribulations, but he will bring his people all the way home. Every single one of them, not one more, not one less, they will all make it. But let's not believe that because some Christians wrote that a couple hundred years ago in a statement of faith. Let's believe that because the Bible says it. Okay, so I'm going to read to you a string of verses, and this I hope this is like an assault on your soul, like a friendly, good assault of verses that will embolden you with this truth that those who are, who are his make it all the way home. These are verses that I think speak without doubt to the preservation of God, the perseverance of the saints. Here's Jesus in John 6, 37. All, this is him speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this, listen to this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will, not maybe, I will raise him up on the last day. If that's the only verse in the Bible, that's all I need about the perseverance of the saints. But there are more. Jesus says in John 10, verse 27, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I, he who gives me, I'm reading the wrong verse. Let me put it on the screen. I have it wrong on my, screen, on my sheet. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Never. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one, not even you yourself, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Ephesians chapter 1, here's what Paul says. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Oh, I could camp out there, but I do not have time. 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Listen to verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So there's a triune preservation here. The Father has planned, the Son has accomplished, and the Spirit put a lid over you. He sealed you, he put a mark on you, and he said, this is the Lord's. Who can take you away from that? In him you were also, when you heard, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God puts a deposit, some of you real estate people, he puts a deposit down on you and he never backs out of his deal. He buys the home, he brings it all the way to himself. But there's more. There's more. Romans 8. You know I couldn't get through this without reading from Romans 8. Come on. Romans 8. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Speaking of the future, it's so certain. A few verses later, verse 35, Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 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 no. Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come on. One more. One, one more. And Ty, I think Tyler's going to preach on this next week, so I'm just going to say it without commentary because I want to give Tyler all the juice for next week. But this is a good one. Where are you at? Tyler, this is a good one. I, come on. First Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father. Are you preaching on this next week? Did I just mess you up? Have you changed your mind? You're, okay, whatever. All right, anyway, you're, you're sort of bound to now. First Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Come on, come on. Put that in your woes me pipe and smoke it. The glory of God in salvation means that all those who are truly saved make it all the way home. I believe that as sure as I'm standing here today. I believe it, I believe it, and I think you should believe it too. But what are we to make? But what are we to make of verses 12, 13, 14? But you, brothers, you, you, watch your heart. Because if you don't watch your heart, you'll fall away from the living God into ruin. Exhort one another today because of the deceitfulness of sin. And 
you, you, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, if, if you endure to the end. Do you, do, you, do you sense the dilemma? Do you see this? Why are these passages like this in Hebrews? Why are these warnings there? Well, here's why I think they're there. Because they are necessary. They're not flat. They're not, they're not theoretical exhortations. It's not the Lord saying, all of you mature Christians that are in a good theological church, you, don't, you can sit this one out. This is for people. This is for the people who think they're Christians, maybe the nominal Christians. Maybe they just get a bulletin from some church and they're just kind of fooled. No, this is, he doesn't make that distinction. He calls his audience brothers. This is for all of us. So what are we to make of that? Did, do you see the tension of this? Here's what I make of it. Here's what I make of it. It's a necessary exhortation. I want you to think of these two words. The verses that I just read gloriously from these passages, aren't they wonderful gospel promises? And we see them, and isn't it so easy to reach for them and to hold on to them and say yes and amen? But we don't just need the promise. God also uses the prod. The promises of God, that salvation is undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Isn't that glorious? Who doesn't want that? The promise is accompanied by the prod. But take care. Take care. Don't. Don't do that. Do not erase. Listen to me. Erase that contact from your phone. Do not Go back there again. Take that computer and smash it with a hammer. Unsubscribe from that. Stop hanging around with those people. Do not let your heart give yourself to community. Exhort one another. Do not go back there. That's the prod, because if the promise is truly yours, the way he causes Christians to lay hold of the promise is by prodding them along so that they grab a hold of the promise. Do you see that? And Christians that are all promise and no prod are in a danger of really fooling themselves. That's the point of this text. That's the point of this text. Promise and prod go together. We feel both. And here's my fear. Here's my concern for my own heart. Here's my concern for my own heart. Because I came, I came to faith. I came to faith in a culture where it was all prod. Remember, there's this, actually, there's, I went to this revival when I was in college. And uh, it was this song we sang. And they would shout something out like watching TV or going to this movie or doing this. And then the refrain, like watching TV, God's going to get you for that. <laughs> oh, well, you know, going, going dancing Saturday night, God's going to get you for that. That was the song, and we sang it. We actually sang it. Heavy on the prod, right? And when it's all prod, when it's all prod, you might trick yourself into thinking, it is you doing the persevering. 
the preservation, but it's actually God. But here's the danger for a church like us, is if it's all promise and there's no prod, if I don't take my Bible and I don't say, oh my gosh, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the... But oh, I've got to exhort, man, I've got to exhort some people because of the deceitfulness of sin. And I've got to hold on. I've got to hold on to the end. Otherwise, I am self-deceived. If I don't feel the force of that, if my life is all promise and no prod, then I think at minimum, I'm an unbalanced balanced Christian and possibly I'm a self-deceived superficial professor. So let me zoom out here and in this. I want you to notice the context of all this. I want you to notice the context of the prod. What is Hebrews 3 coming on the heels of? It's coming on the heels of all that he told us at the end of Hebrews chapter 2. He says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. That he defeated death through death and he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and he propitiated your sin on the cross. He died for you. You're his. So because of this great truth, the indicative of the gospel, lean into him, take care, fight sin, help one another fight sin, and, and prod yourself into grabbing hold of the promise. The context, the, the culture, the background for all of this is not isolated. The culture, the context is the gospel. It's not just do this and maybe you can hold on. It's Christ has done all of this for you. So in context, he's better than sin. Obedience is sweeter than that momentary thing we give ourselves over to. The promised land truly is full of milk and honey. Giants are big, but God will get you through. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ. Don't go back. The prod is real and the promise is sweet. That's the context of Hebrews chapter 3. I end with this. That's the context of Psalm 95, by the way. This is really something. I'm going to read this, and then we'll be done. So we sing Psalm 95, or we read Psalm 95 for our call to worship a lot. And we just read verses 7 through 11, which is 7 through 11 of Hebrews. But I want to read to you what's before in Psalm 95. He says, O come, Psalm 95, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. Listen to this. And we are his, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In other words, he's done this. You're his. He saved you. He's made you his own. But then the psalm takes a turn. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Friends, the prod of Hebrews 3 prod of Psalm 95, 7 through 11, is sitting in the context of the sweetness 
the promise of the gospel. It's not just saying, don't do this lest you fall away. Don't be a bad boy, Johnny. Don't be a bad girl, Susie. But lay a hold of the promise because Jesus is better by far. He's sweeter than the unbelief of sin and he will deliver. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to respond to this text, may we be prodded appropriately by this word. And may we be people who, because we are both prodded and looking forward to the promise, endure to the end. Lord, if there's someone in this room that is on the brink of hardening their hearts, Would they come and would they be prayed for? Would they find a spot? Would they find a Christian to confess, to do business with God, to to be prodded into grabbing hold of the promise? May there be no superficial professors among us. May we all trust and see and believe that Jesus is better by far. Would you do this, Lord, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name.